Welcome to the Marathon Podcast. You're listening to Marcus Hand, and this is the latest episode of Maritime in Minutes. In this edition of Maritime in Minutes, it marks the first anniversary of the series, and we thought it was time to try something a little bit different. So joining me today to discuss some of the most important and interesting stories featured on Sea Maritime News in February is our Europe editor, Gary Howard. Welcome, Gary. Thanks, Marcus, and happy birthday, Maritime in Minutes. I was just listening to the January 2022 episode, and I noticed you saying that there was a sense of deja vu in the headlines, and I don't think it's going to be the case this month. No, indeed. It's been a, a, a lot sort of more different kind of month. I, I know you were referring to the fact I think we started with a COVID story at the start of the January episode. We're going to do this very much like in, in, in previous episodes and cover the month week by week. So we're going to be going straight back now to the start of February. And the first story that jumped out at me and thought it would be interesting to have a little chabber was a bid to revitalize the US maritime industry with an open registry, $2.3 billion hub port plan. You know, the supply chain woes of 2021 have underscored the state of US infrastructure, its ports, and its lack of presence in deep sea ocean shipping. The US fleet counts for just 0.4% of global fleet. And it's incredibly expensive due to the Jones Act. In early February, we saw the announcement of the plan for the revitalization of US maritime trade, commerce, and strategic competition, which was unveiled in Washington, DC. It was certainly ambitious. It includes a US-backed open register for vessels that will be based in the US Virgin Islands and a $2.3 billion transshipment hub, also in the US Virgin Islands. Yeah, interesting question. Will it actually get off the ground? Only time will tell. The open register would be the quicker of the plans to put into action, although cynics might ask what would be the difference to certain other open registers that are already run out of the US. Let's see where this story goes, and I'd like to hand over to Gary. My pick from the first week of February was a story from Man Energy Solutions, I think was written up by our correspondent Paul Bartlett, that some 2,300 commercial vessels with their electronically controlled engines have the potential for dual fuel conversion. Now, with just about 30% of vessels in the order book currently with scope to use LNG as a fuel, I think MAN forecasts this is going to rise to about 50% mid-decade. I thought this story sort of gave some hope that the ship hasn't sailed for vessels that are already on the water when we move into this energy transition towards decarbonisation. But as ever, the devil will be in the details commercial value of potential fuel savings will be significant and the amount of carbon emissions that can be reduced and installation costs of course will be a huge factor lpg lng ethane and methanol retrofit options are currently available from man and i think they said they're looking into ammonia as well i think the interesting point that you sort of stressed there was how much this is actually going to cost probably one reference one we've got is the hapag lloyd lng ready conversion of the brussels express which cost them $35 million. There's a lot more involved process than they had expected, and they're not planning, at least at the moment, to do the other vessels that are LNG-ready. So it's going to be interesting just how much it is going to cost to convert vessels that aren't even designed to be converted. Yeah, and, and fingers crossed, as this becomes more common, perhaps the price for this sort of thing starts coming down as there's a real market focus on it. Picking up again on Hapag Lloyd and a trend that you mentioned in January, the other story I looked at was Hapag Lloyd's operating profit rising sevenfold 
Now it's full audited figures and 2022 outlook are due on the 10th of March, but this very much picked up a trend that started in January and continued throughout February. No, it, it certainly did. It was a trend that very continued in February, and that really brings me to my sort of fourth story that I was going to choose to highlight from the second week, which was Maersk saying it expected to repeat its record $24 billion earnings in 2021. In 2022, there was never any doubt that Maersk was going to report massive earnings for last year. And actually, given their habit of updating their guidance a few weeks before the actual results announcement, we all knew it was going to tweet $24 billion EBITDA. So it was actually no surprise at all. With an EBIT of close to $18 billion, it also had an extremely healthy margin of 37.2%, which is actually not completely unheard of in container shipping anyway. So what is interesting to note, though, is how Maersk is locking in much higher freight rates for the longer term. Its volumes under long-term contract last year increased to 65%, 50% previously. Locking in these long-term freight rates at high levels guarantees future earnings. And surprise, surprise, Maersk is forecasting a repeat of that $24 billion profit in 2022. But as we saw last year, these forecasts have a habit of changing. Yeah, it's like you say, Maersk likes to uh, announce its earnings slightly before it announces its earnings. I did a story just before its full results came out, noting that Maersk revised its 2021 forecast upwards three times during the course of the year, and it started it in a projected EBIT of $8.5 billion and ended up $24 billion, which was actually above the final estimate that it made. So yeah, these things definitely, definitely a moving target. I can imagine that from the customer side, there would be some unhappiness if $24 billion ends up in treble for 2022. Uh, <laughs> but that question of how long this industry is going to take to get back to normal, and that was a focus of a story that was based on analysis by Alice C Intelligence. And they reckon that the container line reliability, which is seen as a key factor in all of this, would take eight to nine months to recover, even if it started tomorrow. And they based this on the labor disputes in the US in early 2015. Now, at that time, the Asia-US West Coast container shipping reliability slumped to 12.6%. And the schedule of reliability seen in January and early February was quite similar. It was 10.1%. And then in the case of those labor disputes, it took that eight to nine months for it to return to normal. And it's worth noting that process hasn't started yet. So that's pretty much the whole of 2022, even if it starts now, for things to return to normal. Moving into week three, and the fact that container shipping is making very, very large amounts of money, and the supply chain is very much a focus, we had a story, supply chain boom turns box ships to attractive cyber attack targets. And that may sound all a bit alarmist, but the conversation I had with Sidone co-founder and CEO Avatar Sintar really kind of put this whole thing into perspective. One of the issues I've had with all these sort of scenarios you get from cybersecurity companies about Maritime is actually the motive for why anybody would want to do these things. I'm not going to sit here and argue that you can't take a bulk carrier full of grain, but who would want to and why is a question that just doesn't tend to get answered. Focusing on container shipping, Avatar focused on the two points we just covered in the previous stories. 
those are shipping lines are making huge amounts of money and the supply chain is under stress and in focus. Taking over a container vessel system, disabling them, now represents a high value target for a ransom against a party that now has also has considerable resources to pay up and potentially faces substantial losses and reputational damage if they don't act quickly. Just a few days could cost them a lot of money and also the reputational damage. It's somewhat like piracy, but without the risks of actually physically boarding and taking over the vessel. Absolutely. And if we look at the incidents recently of container stack collapses and, and losing boxes overboard, the value of the items on container ships adds up incredibly quickly to very large sums. A further story from week three, and again, ties very much into this success, perhaps the wrong word for the container industry at the moment, the money that they're making, was Concordia Maritime looking at a tanker to container ship conversion. Now, there was a lot of talk about carrying containers on dry bulkers last year, but this is the first time I think I've seen any mention of a tanker conversion. Concordia are looking at turning PMAX tankers, which fit somewhere between a, an MR and Panamax capacity-wise, into a 2,100 TEU box ship. It'll be an interesting story to keep an eye on but it sounds incredibly strange to think about a tanker carrying containers across the seas. It does indeed, actually. And it speaks a lot to the state of the tanker market as well, that somebody's actually considering that idea. Just staying with containers for a minute. A story related to the environment. Uh, CMA, CGM, and as they were going to stop carrying plastic waste cargo. This announcement that, personally, I was very pleased to see. The export of plastic waste to countries with little or no regulation as to how the waste is recycled is not a solution. It merely shifts environmental degradation away from the doorsteps of rich nations. Anyone who's read or watched videos about the damage caused by illegal recycling plants in countries such as Indonesia and Malaysia can see the effects they have on the local population and understand what this trade actually means. If you haven't looked at these things, go and look them up on YouTube or something. Some of the videos is pretty horrific the kind of environmental degradation that takes place. So it's great to see this happening and hopefully other container lines will follow suit. But I will say, you could take a slightly cynical view on this. CMA CGM is good at making very well-timed PR statements, such as the move last year to freeze spot rates at the height of the market. Gary, I don't know if you have a view on this. I'd be surprised if this were a move that could be made were rates not quite so strong in the container sector but obviously i absolutely support it as a western consumer myself if we're going to be creating lots of plastic waste and, and that's how we want to make our bed we should at least be forced to lie in it i think still sort of staying with container ships but finally starting to move away a story i picked up for that week was the declaration signed at the one ocean summit in february between european investment bank was on there and then there was a long list of ports port authorities and government ministers from around the world and this was around the idea of shore power and, and cold ironing signatories agreed to make their best efforts which obviously could mean a range of things to supply shoreside electricity by 2028 focusing on container ships and on cruise ships as well which came out of nowhere as far as i was concerned but very welcome story to read and to write no, I agree. It is a very welcome story. I think there's two things that probably need to be borne in mind here. One is that that electricity has to be sustainably produced electricity. There's no point in coming from coal-fired power stations somewhere, because then you're just shifting the pollution again. And the other, the other thing will be ships being ready for this. It's not, you can't simply plug in if you haven't got a ship that's designed 
to plug into shorts like that. So there's, there's going to be essentially some retrofit business going in there for people. Yeah, it's amazing just during the course of this conversation, the number of things that need to be done to vessels to try and keep up with the market. And we've not even touched on ballast water. Moving into week four, Marcus, you hosted a great conversation in this area with people very much in the know about the operation of dual fuel vessel operations. Now, I was tasked with writing up this story on the webinar, which I found quite difficult. As journalists, we tend to look for a nice hook to get into the story. But what we had was a a really informative and reasoned discussion about the changes that companies can expect moving from vessels operating on heavy fuel oil and then moving into operating on things like LNG. For the write-up, I led with Edwin D'Souza from uh, Eagle Star talking about a change of mindset within an organization to move from handling liquids that we're all quite used to dealing with to handling gas fuels and cryogenic liquids, which were obviously much different beasts to handle on board. But in general, the whole webinar felt like a a really good primer for those wondering what's to come as we move into a a dual and multi-fuel future. Yeah, sorry for making your life difficult there, Gary, but actually... Thoroughly recommend going to ctrade-maritime.com, reading Gary's story, and then at the end of that, you can actually go and listen to the full conversation. It's available on demand. And yeah, it was a very rounded and very interesting conversation about all the issues that are going to be involved with dual fuel, which is something that the industry as a whole is going to face going forwards. I think a story that certainly uh, sort of captured a wider public imagination was the fire on the Felicity Ace car carrier. And you had images of smoke billowing out of the badly burned MOL vessel. You know, these are all going to attract public attention. The fact that you just happened to have close to 4,000 vehicles on board, many of which were sort of high-value Porsches, Lamborghinis and Audis, made it all the more sexy. Risk analysts, the Russell Group, estimated the cargo to be worth some $401 million. Unfortunately, the crew was safely evacuated, and the vessel is now under tow to safe harbour. But it does highlight concerns over electric cars and lithium-ion battery fires. While the number of electric vehicles on board the Felicity Ace is unclear, it's caused the, under, you know, the sort of potential threats of thousands of battery-powered vehicles erupting into a fierce fire on a vessel that would be very difficult, if not impossible, to bring under control. And this is something that insurers are certainly aware of and have had conversations with them in recent years. There was an interview you had with a training provider speaking specifically about this issue of training seafarers to deal with these kind of more complex fire situations on board, which I will add links to in the story for this podcast on seatrade-maritime.com. And without making more work for myself, and again, in this similar sort of area, there's a great piece from Paul Bartlett on Sea Trade Maritime News about the sort of story behind the headlines on PI renewals. I won't go into details here, but it's a great piece, and I'll link that in the show story. Indeed, it is a really good story, and it sort of tells you what was really going on behind the rather positive, upbeat press statements we received from the PI clubs. Moving into sort of the last story that we're going to look at in this podcast, and clearly the headlines of global media over the last week of the month have been dominated by conflict in the Ukraine. In the build-up to the invasion, the oil price started to spike, and the most immediate impact on shipping of this is then the rise in the bulk price. The cost of very low sulfur fuel oil, the main fuel used since IMO 2020 came into force, has surpassed previous all-time highs for HFO, 
And this trend has continued with the onset of the actual conflict. And the average very low sulfur fuel oil price has now pushed past the $800 per tonne mark. So this is actually getting quite serious, significant impact for the industry. Indeed. And again, this follows something that was mentioned on the January episode of Maritime in Minutes. I think you quoted Gibson as saying that a major geopolitical event has the potential to upend the global oil market if there were conflict between Russia, Europe and the US. And here we are seeing exactly that happen. Yes, and indeed. We saw rates from Black Sea and Baltic ports jumping by 240% immediately after the conflict started. Although, as Brokers Potent noted, there were very few actual fixtures done, so it's pretty hard to know what the real rates would be if anybody actually chooses to do their business. The outlook remains very uncertain, and a growing list of sanctions could have quite a bearing on this if they move into the energy sector. Absolutely. It's going to take a few hours for us to turn around this podcast and get it edited and published, and we have no idea how much things will change in that time. The last story I wrote on this was about the UK closing its ports to Russian ships. Now, that was defined as Russian flagged, registered, owned, controlled, chartered, or operated vessels. I think we all in the maritime industry know how difficult it is to identify the beneficial owners of a vessel. And the government had said it has, the UK government has said, it will look into supporting the industry and identifying sanctioned vessels and communicating directly with ports to let them know. Sovcom flot have been targeted specifically by US sanctions and this UK barring of Russian ships comes after a bit of uproar in Scotland about there was a, a vessel due to call today, this to the 1st of March today, in the Orkneys, a Sovcom flot crude oil tanker was due to call and locals and local politicians were not happy about it. But in general, there's a growing web of sanctions could make dealing with Russian entities very difficult. And then we see headlines of uh, companies like oil majors announcing that they're breaking ties on Russian projects and investments. So a very fast moving scenario out there. Indeed it is. It's fast moving and complicated. And it's something we will be continuing to cover in coming weeks. Thank you for joining me today, Gary. And thank you, everybody, for taking the time to listen. We've come to the end of February there, and um, so we've really got time for in this episode of Maritime in Minutes. If you're interested to check out some of these stories, visit ctrade-maritime.com and sign up for our newsletter to make sure you don't miss any of the stories in the coming month. With that, I'd just like to thank you all for listening and stay safe till the next episode.